You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for joining us here at Washington Post Live. I'm Karen Tumulty, Deputy Editorial Page Editor and a columnist here at The Post, and we are joined today by our guest, former New Jersey governor and former 2016 presidential candidate, Chris Christie, who has a new book out called Republican Rescue, the subtitle, Saving the Party from Truth Deniers, Conspiracy Theorists, and Dangerous Policies of Joe Biden. Welcome, Governor Christie. Great to see you, Karen. Um, So let's talk about the point that you were making in the clip that that we just showed where you described the the quicksand of endless grievances, uh, the backward, always looking backward party. This is very much describing the Republican Party of today, which actually is really the party of Donald Trump and Trumpism. Uh, this book is a lot of this book is about your own personal relationship with former President Trump. What in the world? makes you think that the Republican Party that is so much in the thrall of this one individual is ready to free itself from what you describe as quicksand? Well, I'll give you two reasons. One that is um, uh, one that is statistical uh, evidence and, and one that is more my own political um, gut perception, Karen. The first one, um, two days ago, Des Moines Register came out with a poll um, that polled Iowa Republicans. And you know, Karen, from having covered um, Iowa politics, that Iowa Republicans are some of the most conservative Republicans in America. And they asked, to whom is your first loyalty, the Republican Party or Donald Trump? 62% said the Republican Party, 26% said Donald Trump. I suspect a year ago that that, those numbers would have been significantly different. And so I think you're starting to see people as time passes since the Trump presidency. Uh, begin to focus on the fact that without an independent, vibrant, idea-driven Republican Party, we have nothing to fight back against Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and the congressional Democrats. The second is that I've traveled around the country a decent amount um, since we all got a little bit freed up from the COVID pandemic, I'd say start starting this summer, um, and gone to a number of different districts campaigning for, raising money for, congressional candidates and and members of Congress. And I can tell you from talking to grassroots Republicans, while they still admire much of what the president did as president, many of them are turned off by the continuing talk of the election being stolen in 2020, which prevents our party from focusing on what Joe Biden is up to right now and being able to fight most effectively against that. So both those things tell me, I think, that we are moving towards a change. But last point, I know we've become an instant gratification society uh, and we want things to happen immediately, but let's remember, Donald Trump dominated the political landscape in this country for five years, like no one else I've ever seen dominated for that period of time. And yet um, uh, it's only been less than 10 months since he's left office and we expect things to have radically changed. That's not the way the change happens in this country. It's usually over time. And I suspect that's the way the Republican Party is evolving, uh, in part for historical reasons and in part because of the things that the the former president continues to talk about. 
But still, just last weekend, you had the Republican Party of Wyoming vote that it would no longer recognize Liz Cheney as a Republican uh, because they felt that she had betrayed Donald Trump. I mean, what do you make of of moves like that? I mean, those would seem to suggest that, you know, at least the party structure is still very much under his control. Karen, that's the Wyoming party structure with all due respect to them. Um, There's certainly never, Wyoming's never been seen as a bellwether um, for the rest of the country and certainly not a bellwether for swing states. And let's see what happens in the, in the primary for Liz Cheney. I mean, she may not be recognized as a member of the Republican Party by the apparatus in Wyoming, but she may be recognized as uh, the nominee for Congress by the voters of the Republican primary in Wyoming. So let's see what happens. And let's make it clear, Liz has made this intensely personal against the president um, and and others less so. And so I think that kind of, uh, you know, uh, tilts it a little bit as well. But in the end, um, I've never seen the Wyoming Republican Party as a bellwether for the country. I think they take pride in that, quite frankly. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens in the primary. I think that'll be a much, much bigger test of what feelings are like in Wyoming than a vote by a small number of state committee people. So what do you make of the elections earlier this month in with regard to your own thesis? There was Virginia, which I think a lot of people sort of saw coming at the end. New Jersey, which the closeness of that race was a a real shocker, maybe not to you, but to the rest of us. I mean, and, you know, again, races across the country from Long Island to Seattle, where uh, even within Democratic primaries, it was more moderate candidates who won. What What is the message there? And specifically, what is the message for the Republican Party? Right. So I'll start with the Democrats first. I think this is what happens when you govern in a way that's inconsistent with how you campaigned. So Joe Biden campaigned as a uniter, as a moderate, said, we're not gonna elect socialists like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And then once he becomes president, he allows Bernie Sanders to essentially write the first draft of his Build Back Better plan. Um, I think that what voters across the country were saying to the Democrats is, whoa, this is not what we voted for. This is, you know, broken promise or, or, at wor- or at best misleading. And so I think they were trying to send them a message. I think the message to Republicans was be authentic and run on your own issues about the future, not the party's interests, uh, not the party's uh, theories of the past. So Glenn Youngkin runs in Virginia on cutting the grocery tax. He runs in Virginia on putting parents more involved in the uh, local educational system, um, and and he runs on trying to create jobs in Virginia. He he did not run uh, running against national Democrats. He didn't run against President Biden. He ran against Terry McAuliffe. Terry McAuliffe, on the other hand, ran a backwards-looking campaign, spending a lot of time and money on ads about Donald Trump. I think the message is the winner is always the one who goes forward, who lays out a smart, common sense plan for the future, 
that speaks to the needs of the people you're looking to represent. And if you're looking in the rearview mirror, you're most likely going to lose. That's what happened to Terry McAuliffe in New Jersey, which is a much bluer state than Virginia. Uh, you had a race that came down to two and a half points between Jack Chiarelli and Phil Murphy, but Republicans picked up three seats in the state Senate, picked up six seats, maybe eight. There's still a potential recount going on in the lower house. Uh, it was a very good night for Republicans in my very blue state. And while we came a little bit short in the governorship, I think, again, the message is Jack Chitterelli did not run looking backwards. He didn't talk about stop the steal. He didn't talk about those kind of things. What he talked about was cutting taxes in New Jersey, making it more affordable, uh, and and going forward with that and having less government in your life, not more. Uh, so I think if you campaign that way, Karen, um, you've got a great chance of winning. And that's what the book is about is about saying, here's the last part of the Trump presidency and what it looked like from my perspective. Here in the center section are all these conspiracy theories, birtherism, uh, QAnon, Pizzagate, the election shenanigans. And let's review all of them like a prosecutor, lay out the facts, come to my conclusion so hopefully uh, the readers can come to their own. And then the last part of the book is about the future of the Republican Party and how we should campaign. There are a couple of things I, I, I want to get to on that score. But, you know, you do have a lot in the book about the sort of history and the context of conspiracy theories. You talk a lot about, for instance, the growth of the John Birch Society. But the, the difference is that Robert Welch was never in the Oval Office. The John Birch Society was never more than a fringe element of the Republican Party. Uh, and there were also conservative intellectual forces like William F. Buckley back then. I don't know who is the William F. Buckley of today. I don't know, Tucker Carlson. Um, so how much is Donald Trump and the apparatus that he built around him, the media apparatus, the political apparatus, how much are they directly responsible for this corrosive uh, assault on the truth today? Well, first off, let me go back to the history you talk about in the book. Um, the, the John Birch Society was such a large part of the Republican primary influential uh, network that Barry Goldwater, who originally promised Bill Buckley that he would join him in opposing the John Birch Society, backed off because he wanted to run for president in 1964 and didn't think he could win the primary if he took such a strong stance against the John Birch Society. So who stepped in the breach for Buckley? It was Ronald Reagan. Not someone that the media characterized at that point as an intellectual or philosophical giant. He was still two years away from being elected governor of California, what was then a major upset. And, but Reagan stood up strong against the John Birch Society and remained that way uh, until the John Birch Society was essentially discredited within the Republican Party and then really did truly become just a fringe element of the party. Now, I don't know about the media apparatus we're talking about with Donald Trump. In my view, most of the media was against Donald Trump for most of the time that he was president. And now social media, like Twitter and Facebook, have banned him um, from being on those sites. And so he doesn't really have a media outlet, as you know, 
He basically sends out press releases now that he hopes media will cover. But here's the media apparatus that I think he does have. You know, we've spent the first 15 minutes or so of this of this interview talking about Donald Trump. And I suspect that if I was willing to engage in 45 minutes on Donald Trump, we'd do 45 minutes. And this is like Jeff Zucker saying to me, the head of CNN, saying to me, Donald Trump became president because of your endorsement. But Jeff well, Zucker there's a was, lot of but, well, Donald Trump in this book, too. So There is. It's, it's, it's about a third of the book. It's about a third. About 100 pages on Donald Trump and 200 on the rest. But Karen, Jeff Zucker saying to me that I elected Donald Trump because I endorsed him early and gave him credibility. And Jeff Zucker not taking responsibility for when I was standing in Iowa during the campaign, in my primary campaign, I come back to my hotel room and CNN would play an hour and a half speech from Donald Trump from Alabama, uninterrupted by commercial on their network. I, I looked at him, I said, doctor, heal thyself. You know, so the media is obsessed with Donald Trump, wants to continue to talk about him, makes it hard for people to move on. Um, and so there's a lot of responsibility um, that goes around here in terms of it. And what I'm trying to do with this book is to say, here's where we've been, that first third with Donald Trump. Here's all these conspiracy theories and truth denying that I think are corrosive to the party and the country. And then in the last part, here's a path forward. If you're joining with me, getting away from these conspiracy theories and this truth denying and, and wanting to talk about how we counter the policies of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So there's obviously when somebody of your stature comes out with a book in this sort of season immediately, there's a lot of speculation as to whether you yourself are going to run in 2024. Could you talk a little bit first about what your plans are for the midterm elections and also kind of what are you thinking about as you're looking at 2024? What what kind of factors would be going into your own calculation? Sure. First on 2022, I've agreed to do two things um, with my political time in 2022. The first is I'm the co-chair of the Republican Governors Association Victory Fund, which means I'll be in charge of raising, along with my co-chair, Michelle Olson, um, the, the bulk of private uh, you know, individual donations into the RGA to help support governor's races across the country. We have 36 governor's races in 2022. Uh, as you might remember, Karen, I was the chairman of the RGA in 2014. We got up to 31 governorships by winning in blue states like Illinois, Massachusetts, and Maryland um, in that 2014 cycle. Um, and so I, I intend to be very active and very helpful um, with the governor's races. Second, I've agreed to co-chair the National Republican Redistricting Trust. This is gonna be the group that's gonna help support uh, Republican state legislators um, across the country who are now going through congressional and legislative redistricting after the census to try to make sure that maps are fair and constitutional. And I'm doing that co-chairing with former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. So those are the two big things that I'll be working on for 2022 in trying to help our congressional side through redistricting and trying to help our governors through raising campaign cash that'll help to support them as they get down to the final legs of their races um, in 36 different states. And as for 2024, I'll think about three things. Um, the first is, do I believe 
that the ideas and the talents that I have are particularly well suited to the time that we're gonna be facing in 2024. Secondly, do I see that we have a pathway to victory? Because Karen, I do not wanna run for president just for the experience. I've already had the experience. I don't need to do that again. And third, um, I gotta know that my family is supportive of me giving this a second try. Um, because if, if they're not, it makes it impossible for you to be able to do it in a way where you have the kind of clear mind and open heart um, that you need to campaign, I think, effectively for the presidency. So I'll make that decision probably after the midterms in 22 or in early 2023. Um, and if I check all three of those boxes, then I'll run. And if I don't check off any one of those three boxes, then I won't. And what you described, again, we're back to Donald Trump, my excuse here, but um, you describe, you say you still consider him a friend. Um, what are the circumstances in which you would or would not be able to support him if he decides to run in 2024? And also given all the just, dysfunction you describe in this book. I mean, what would a second Trump presidency look like? Well, on, the, on your first question, what I'd say to you is this. Um, one, I might be running. And if I'm running, then clearly I wouldn't be supporting him. I'd be working to try to make sure that I secure the nomination. And secondly, you know, I, I used, I described this to the British ambassador who asked me um, back in 2016 uh, to explain our American presidential political system to him because he was having a hard time understanding it. And I said to him, look, in America, you don't necessarily get to vote for who you want to vote for. You get to vote for who's left. And in 2016, who was left was Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And I couldn't countenance the idea of Hillary Clinton being president of the United States. That's my personal opinion. And so I worked as hard as I could to make Donald Trump the best candidate and then ultimately the best president um, that, that he could be. Um, I don't know what my options are going to be in 2024, and so I can't sit here and compare Donald Trump to anyone else. Um, and, and I also don't know what will Donald Trump be talking about in 2023 and 2024. Maybe he'll abandon the conversations he's talking about about the 2020 election and move on to talking about ideas for the future. I don't know what it'll be, but I don't gain anything from speculating about that right now. And so we'll see what happens. So can you foresee circumstances under which you would run against him? Oh, look, if I decide I'm going to run, I don't care who else is running. If I answer those three questions in the affirmative, I'm not going to defer to anybody, Karen. And I think, frankly, that anybody who says they're going to defer is disqualifying themselves from the presidency. Because if you don't believe in yourself enough, then you have no right sitting in that chair. Because even when you believe in yourself that strongly, the decisions and the weight of the office of the presidency is hard for any person to bear. And we see the way it's aged our presidents over the years. Um, so my view on it is, um, if you don't have the strength of conviction to just decide whether you are the right person or not, um, without wondering about who else you're going to be running against, then you have no business running at all. So could we talk maybe a lightning round here about some of the other figures who have become really important and much talked about in, in the party? Um, so tell us about 
Governor DeSantis. Do you, do you see him as a potential national leader, even as he is having a you know special session, I believe, right now in Florida to uh, to vote against vaccine mandates to prevent private companies from imposing them? Is is this the kind of leadership the country really needs? Well, look, I, you know, I read the papers, so I know that there's lots of people who think that Ron DeSantis is a future potential leader, potential presidential candidate. Um, I can't say that I know him all that well, Karen. We didn't serve together. I've only met him a few times, so I don't know all that much about him. Um, but he's going to have to go through a re-election campaign in 2022 and put his record out in front of the voters of Florida. And after that, let's see how it goes from there. But I don't know Governor DeSantis all that well, so I'm probably not in a position to give you a whole lot of opinion on him. And and do you take seriously talk that, for instance, Tucker Carlson might throw his his hat into the race? I do not. So who, as you as you look out there in the landscape for the kind of forward thinking, up and coming Republican leaders that you are talking about, you you mentioned Governor Elect Youngkin, and I think it's worth mentioning as well that the RGA, where you are continuing to play a leadership role, was very much on the ground and an asset for him in that race. Could you describe, are there are there other people out there that we should be keeping an eye on as, you know, potentially able to sort of help pull the Republican Party out of this quicksand? Well, I think there's a lot of really good leaders out there. I, I know, Karen, as I start to give this list, I'm ultimately going to regret it because there'll be people that I'll leave out who then I will hear from after they see this. But given that you're so nicely asking, I'll I'll do my best to try to give you as complete a list as I can, even at my own peril. Um, I, I, look, we, we start off with people like Brian Kemp in Georgia, who I think has been a strong, solid, conservative leader in, in the Republican Party and somebody who I have great respect for. Uh, you head up the coast, um, and I think uh, Governor Larry Hogan in Maryland has been a really strong and solid leader um, for the for the people of the state of Maryland for the last six years, and and I think he's been, um, you know, just an, an outstanding uh, outstanding governor. Um, you head up the coast even further, and you got Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, another outstanding Republican governor um, in a blue state. Um, you move to Ohio, uh, somebody like Mike DeWine has been a very experienced uh, governmental figure, and I think a very good um, governor uh, of the state of Ohio, Pete Ricketts. In Nebraska, been a very good governor in Nebraska, and somebody who I have a, a lot of respect for. Um, governor Doug Ducey in Arizona, another younger leader, somebody who I have a great deal of respect for. Governor Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, um, another really good, strong, smart, very smart um, leader up in New Hampshire, who I think has done um, an outstanding job um, there, uh, and, and someone who I think has a real future. Someone who's not as well known, but who I've I've grown to have a lot of respect for is Governor Stitt in Oklahoma. Um, I think he has quietly been doing a very nice job um, in Oklahoma and is somebody who I think um, could be a real um, factor in being a leading voice in the party. Adam Laxalt in Nevada, um, another uh, good guy um, who is considering running for office now, again, former, uh, I think, Attorney General, former Attorney General of Nevada. 
I think Adam's been um, an outstanding guy um, as well and somebody that, you know, we need to keep our eye on uh, there. Uh, so, you know, you, you look at that list. I know there's people that I've forgotten and I know I, my phone just vibrated. I am sure it's probably one of the people as I rounded up the list that I forgot to mention. So I will just prophylactically apologize to them now before I ever look at my phone after our interview is over. But at great political peril to myself, Karen, I'll start with that list with the proviso that I'm sure there's some folks that I forgot. Well, in the little bit of time we have left, um, what is, is there going to be some event that you are looking for in the next campaign season that would indicate that the Republican Party is in fact capable of transforming itself back to its roots the way you have discussed in the book? Well, I'm going to be watching really closely to see how uh, candidates campaign, Karen, because you know um, how how you campaign gives a real indication about where it's where you think the political wind is blowing. And so I'll be looking very closely at swing district House races, some of these really important Senate races in places like Arizona, Pennsylvania, um, New Hampshire, uh, Georgia. Uh, there'll be places that we're going to be really looking at those races very closely. Um, and governor's races as well in uh, in open seat governorships that will be important to look at. So I'll be looking to see how people campaign, what things they're emphasizing. Um, the same way that Glenn Youngkin and Jack Chitterelli's campaigns in Virginia and New Jersey gave us a little bit of a window. Remember, both of them affirmatively said they didn't want Donald Trump to come in and campaign for them. And so, you know, that gives you an indication of where they thought the political wind was blowing in their particular states. So let's see how that works going forward, Karen. Thank you so much, Governor. And we are out of time, but we so appreciate you being with us today. I always, always great to talk to you, Karen. Um, and I appreciate your questions and appreciate the time to talk about, about the book. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.